Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm thrilled to say we are joined by Senator Alex Padilla. He is the first Latino to represent California in the U.S. Senate. Senator Padilla previously served as the California Secretary of State. He served in the California State Legislature and in the Los Angeles City Council. Senator Padilla, welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica, and uh, great to be with you again. First time on this uh, podcast. First time, hopefully not the last time. And I want to jump right into something that I know that is near and dear to your heart. And I see this on Twitter a lot when you post about it, which is the need to eliminate the filibuster. And that's obviously the requirement that a lot of legislation get this super majority of 60 votes through the Senate. You're now in the Senate. Can you tell us about how this is working in practice and basically what it's thwarting, what you could otherwise be doing and how we can eliminate it? No, I appreciate the question because the filibuster single-handedly has kept so much good from happening, so much progress from being made on so many critical issues, whether it's you know the recent debate over protecting our fundamental right to vote, when uh, people talk to me throughout the state about the need for immigration reform, a more ambitious climate action on the part of the federal government, criminal justice reform, and more. We know the ideas, we know the policy that needs to be accomplished, but because of the filibuster, very difficult to overcome this supermajority, 60 vote threshold to be able to advance that. Uh, And that's without getting into the history of the filibuster, how it was created, how it was uh, exploited to uh, delay, delay, delay civil rights in America. It's a Jim Crow relic, frankly, but I think all you really need to know is how in recent years it's been used and abused by our Republican colleagues to obstruct progress on so many issues that the nation is in dire need of, the American public supports, voting rights, immigration reform, just two of the more pertinent examples. Senator Padilla, if you could help me, I hear the criticism a lot of, well, we need the filibuster because it fosters compromise. I mean, my response is all appearances to the contrary, but you're actually there. Is there any positive part of the filibuster? Was there anything that you think, well, back in a different era, this might have fostered more consensus building? Or is this something that we just never should have had to begin with? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I hear some of the same stories. Once upon a time, it forced the parties to work together. That's certainly not what I'm seeing. In uh, my conversations with several of my colleagues, including, yes, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, one of the things I hear is, well, the filibuster is there to serve as an incentive for the party that's in the majority to engage the party that's in the minority. And that may sound laudable, but for all practical purposes, what I see is zero incentive for the minority party, today being Republicans, to engage the majority. You know, when you can simply sit back, even in the privacy of your own office, and phone it in saying, no, I'm going to hold up this item and keep the Senate from taking action, that's just not right. And I don't think that's the kind of filibuster that most of the American public expects or thinks is right. If you know anything about the filibuster, maybe that old movie, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where he lectured for hours and hours and hours on end from his desk. Even if we were to go to something like that, where any member who wanted to hold up an item on the floor of the Senate would have to show their face 
and articulate their opposition to a specific issue. What I see today is people anonymously uh, holding up items. Every time I've inquired as to why aren't we able to vote on this or why can't we get the votes for that, the concern from the person holding up the bill is completely unrelated. They have a bone to pick with uh, President Biden or they have an issue when it comes to the budget. So they're going to use the filibuster as political leverage. It's just nonsense. Are you worried that at some point, this is something else I think about when I have this reaction of, okay, there's a Democrat in the White House. Democrats, by the thinnest of majorities, control the Senate. They also control Congress. And yet there are so many things that aren't happening as a result of the filibuster. But this could change quickly. Are you concerned that if the filibuster is eliminated, then when Democrats do become the minority power, that that will limit their ability, that that basically takes one of the most important tools out of the tool shed when it comes to the power of the minority party, which of course could be Democrats either in the near future or the more long distance future. More than a fair question. And I've heard that question a lot. I've thought about it a lot. But as I process that question, I'm more worried about what will happen to our democracy if we don't act to reform the filibuster and pass voting rights. You know, let's uh, take climate change as yet another issue as an example. If you know the science, if you believe the science and the data, you know that to label it an existential threat to our country and to the planet is not an exaggeration. And so, again, what's going to happen to our environment, to national security, to the economy, if we don't take more aggressive action on climate change, if we don't expand access to health care and more? So uh, to your point, if Democrats lose the majority, what's going to keep Republicans from not advancing a more extremist agenda? Well, that's going to be the choice they have to make. Will they put forward legislation that the majority of Americans oppose, and then they'll have to answer for those issues, for those votes, and very unpopular platforms, that's a chance I'm willing to take. This is something that I think about a lot with respect to the Supreme Court, which is there are short-term fixes and long-term fixes. And the short-term fixes, I'm not that crazy about, to be honest, but at a certain point, I mean, you use the words kind of existential crisis. I mean, that's true for a lot of issues that will face the Senate and a lot of issues that will face the Supreme Court. We're recording this episode on a day when it was just announced that there will be a Supreme Court vacancy, that Justice Breyer stepped down or is going to step down and allow President Biden to fill that seat. I know you can't get ahead of what the White House is going to do, but I'm wondering if, as someone who's in that chamber, are you optimistic that Senate Democrats will be able to coalesce around a nominee? Because, of course, when it comes to a Supreme Court nominee, you just need a simple majority. You don't need to pass that threshold that you do for other types of legislation that we were just talking about. So, uh, yes, I am confident. I'm confident because as I've gotten to know my colleagues, that's my instinct, that's my gut, you know, fully expect President Biden to put forward the name of somebody that's more than qualified. And I think we're on the verge of a historic nomination to the Supreme Court. You can also look at the track record. I think all Democrats have been consistent in supporting the vast majority, if not all, of uh, President Biden's appointments to the federal bench at all levels. Quality candidates and uh, historic diversity in the pool of folks that have been put forward. I think from broader public conversation, boy, if the last you know 
five plus years have not made it clearly evident. It's not just that elections have consequences, but uh, who the president of the United States is, who's in the majority of the Senate determines who gets nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court and has that critical say on the most profound, fundamental and critical issues of the land. To think that a woman's right to choose is back as a question before the Supreme Court. Who's on the Supreme Court matters. Coming back to immigration, the lives of so many young people that enjoy the protections of DACA are now having their lives hang back in the balance because of questions in courts working their way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, Those are just some of the initial examples. So this is an extremely important point. Who will be President Biden's nominee to fill the pending vacancy? I'm not just a member in this chamber. I'm a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So eagerly await my opportunity to raise questions, raise issues in the confirmation process in the uh, weeks ahead. You've mentioned a couple of times now, and this is one of the other foundational issues, the Supreme Court, obviously, and I think you said this so well, it's a foundational issue. They fundamentally affect our daily lives in a lot of the ways that you talked about, reproductive rights, environmental rights, immigration rights. And one of those other baseline fundamental issues is voting rights. And again, I've heard you say that a few times. I think people are confused about maybe why it's needed and what the legislation actually would do. So I think people generally know red states are proposing restrictions on voting, but maybe not that much more. Could you help us understand why we need this federal floor of protection when it comes to voting? Sure. Uh, And before I do that, just one final word on the Supreme Court. You know, when uh, he was a candidate for president, President Biden pledged to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court at his first opportunity. I wholly support that pledge and fully look forward to him fulfilling that pledge. A lot of tremendous talent out there. And I emphasize it because as the first Latino to represent California, the United States Senate, I know more than I ever have in my life that representation matters. It's not just diversity for the sake of diversity, but when we bring our diverse life experiences and professional experiences to an important institution, whether it's the United States Senate or the Supreme Court of the United States, it is important in the decision-making that happens in those bodies. Voting rights, absolutely one of the issues that the Supreme Court created in their 2013 decision, Shelby v. Holder which gutted the teeth, frankly, of the Federal Voting Rights Act. And so what we've seen in the years since is state after state that in the past, prior to 2013, had to pre-clear with the U.S. Department of Justice any changes to their elections, how they administer elections to make sure that it did not discriminate, it did not disenfranchise certain communities. When the Supreme Court acted in 2013, That opened up the floodgates in state after state to advance discriminatory voter ID laws, the reduction of polling places, or the number of days of early voting, or we saw a huge increase in the purging of voter rolls, all these things that make it difficult for eligible people, disproportionately communities of color, young people, lower income communities, to participate in our elections. My God, what's more fundamental in our democracy than free and fair elections and our right to vote. And so the uh, Freedom to Vote Act, it's the measure that is now before the Senate, 
would create a baseline voting rights, access to the ballot for every eligible voter in America. And I'm going to brag on California a little bit because uh, the reforms called for in the Freedom to Vote Act mirror a lot of the reforms that we successfully implemented in California. Imagine that, multiple ways for eligible people to safely and securely register to vote. Filling out that card, mailing it in, or doing it online, or at the DMV when you're applying for or renewing your driver's license or your ID, or even same-day registration if you missed a prior deadline. Multiple ways to safely and securely be able to cast your ballot and have that vote counted, whether it's voting by mail, in-person early voting, or election day voting at the uh, voting location most convenient to you on election day. Every voter in America deserves that. And uh, I remind myself and my colleagues, isn't that what we all supposedly learned in high school government class? Our democracy works best when as many eligible people participate in our elections. That's what we should be working towards. Is there, I mean, when you put it that way, it's kind of hard to argue with why wouldn't we make it easier? Why wouldn't we lower the barriers to entry when it comes to allowing eligible people to vote? Is there any there there in your mind when it comes to these restrictions that make it more difficult to vote? And or to be blunt, is this about anything other than trying to pick voters to make sure that people win elections and maintain power? Yeah, I mean, what I've seen on the part of Republicans is absolutely that. It's an attempt to hold on to political power, plain and simple, similar to a discriminatory uh, gerrymandering that's been Again, the subject of a lot of court cases that have worked all the way up to the Supreme Court. So is uh, controlling how easy it is or isn't for people to register to vote and cast their ballot. When the state of Alabama years ago implemented a voter ID law, they said, well, it's not a big deal. If you can't afford a driver's license or an ID, we'll make it free. But then they proceeded to shut down DMV offices in the counties with the highest African-American population. Give me a break. In states like Georgia, where... uh, It's now against the law to offer somebody waiting in line for hours to vote a bottle of water? Really? As my colleague, uh, the Senator Warnock from Georgia says, well, the equally important question is to ask ourselves, why is the line so long to begin with? You know, when you make it harder for some people to cast their ballots, you're influencing who the electorate is and by extension, the outcome of the election. So that's what it's about. The people of our country deserve better. And what's written to the Constitution is certainly not that. Senator Padilla, I appreciate that you mentioned a few things, which is that the diversity is important when it comes to people who are making decisions on the executive level, the legislative level, and the judicial level, that we know from experience that when there are people at the table who bring a diversity of life experiences, we get better outcomes. And we want to hear from more people when it comes to our democracy that the more people who can vote without having, frankly, restrictions that seem to make very little sense, the better. And I know that you're working on these issues. And Senator Padilla, we so appreciate your time. Thank you so much for passing judgment with us. Thank you, Jessica. Look forward to uh, our next visit. You can find Senator Alex Padilla on Twitter at SenAlexPadilla. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. 
We're so proud to be able to bring these conversations to you, our listeners. Please like, rate, review everything, subscribe. We love hearing from you. We wish everybody a great day and we will talk to you soon.